I'm sure it is. So we want to ask the Lord to be able to give us some wisdom and direction this morning. If we were to evaluate on a sliding scale, where is the church in general? Where is our church in particular? And how can we get to that better place? Um, We look around the room, and some of you have had good church experiences. I know that. Which just identifies. I've had good church experience. Few of us haven't. How many would say, no, actually, it's frankly a surprise that I'm here this morning because my church experience has been so bad historically. Are there any of those in here? Some, I've talked to you. I've talked to some. And community is also a challenge not only because of where we come from, but kind of who we are. So those of you that are extroverts this morning, you say, yes, let's just go for it, right? Any extroverts in the room? Yeah, so you're kind of leaning forward. Hopefully you're leaning forward. And then there are those of us introverts in the room. Any introverts in the room? Oh, my goodness, I thought, you can't be introverts. You raise your hand. <laughs> you know, but but there's, just, there's just that tendency uh, to walk into this um, uh, together. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to note briefly the nature of Christian community. I want to comment on the actual character of where Christian community is and has been in the history of the church. I want, to learn, I want us to learn something about Paul's insights for community. And then I want to help us all walk away, every one of us to walk away with implications for what it might mean for you when you leave this place and you walk into the calling that God has given you. So, are you ready? Uh, let's pray. Lord, we do come to this place from different places. We pray that we would come alive this morning in ways we don't even expect, Lord. Uh, that we might come alive together, Lord. That you might speak to us and challenge us and encourage us and redirect us in ways that allow us to see Jesus in us and others to see him as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to spend some time this morning in the book of Galatians. It was a letter that Paul actually wrote to a church in a community called Galatia. And the theme of it was, the, was freedom in Christ. In fact, you'll see that in some of your notes for those of you that have it in one of these kind of books rather than on your smartphone. Maybe your smartphone has those notes. The theme is freedom in Christ, but it's freedom in Christ that actually leads to vibrant, authentic Christian community. You'll see that as we walk into the text this morning. First of all, I want to read the portion of it that I want to pay the most attention to, and then we'll build out on that. The text is from Galatians chapter 5, and beginning in verse 13. It says this, You, my brothers and sisters, there's that sense of community, right? We're called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Again, we're back to the theme of community. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you too will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The text goes on, and we'll get there eventually, but I want to focus on this sense of what it means actually to be authentic Christian community. It takes a while for Paul actually to build up to this. It takes him actually a couple of chapters, and we'll talk about why it took so long for him to actually get to the the critical element of what this letter was about, but we actually finally find it in chapter 3. It's the first time he really lays it all out. I mean, he's three chapters into this letter, and he's finally disclosing what matters most to him and what he wants to say to the people there. Look at Galatians chapter 3, 27 through 29, and Ben will actually put it up on the screen behind us. We read, we read these words. Um, in verse 27, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, and you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you're all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Authentic Christian community is described here. First of all, it is this. It is when we, as people of faith, flourish in a place. That's authentic Christian community. And we see it here. It talks about us being part of Abraham's family, heirs according to the promise. Abraham was a very, very wealthy man. Plenty of business dealing, plenty of resources, plenty of things at his disposal. And God's promise was that Abraham would be blessed and all of his children. So if we belong to Abraham, we've been blessed. Authentic Christian community is for us to be part of the family. And it's a family that is rich and enriched. It's a family where shalom, where peace, where flourishing takes place. That's what it means to be in community, where every one of us flourish. There's another aspect of this, and that is when others outside of this place flourish. This is what God said to Abraham. He said, I will bless you and yours so that you will be a blessing to all people. So if this is authentic Christian community, it not only means that we flourish, it means that the world flourishes because of us. Now we know we're getting to authentic community when the people we rub shoulders with, the people we have some influence, some way in their lives, flourish. Now there's a third aspect of this, and that is authentic Christian community is when everyone matters. It says there is no difference. We put on the garment of Christ, and clothing in that day in particular was an identifier of who you were and what your status was. Our status now is we put on Jesus. That's it. No one's wearing anything else. We put on the robe, we put on the clothing of Jesus. That means that if you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't make any difference. In terms of status and value and significance to the place, if you're a woman or you're a man, it doesn't make any difference. If, you're, if, if your social status is slavery or free, it doesn't make any difference. Walk into faith in Christ and you put on the clothing of Christ. And that means we look around and all we see are people, human beings clothed in Christ. Now there's a fourth element of this. It's we flourish, others flourish, everyone matters. 
Actually, before I go to the fourth one, I want to get into this Everyone Matters bit. It was Black History Month. One of my disciplines this year has been to read a really hard book. It's called The People's History of the United States. Yeah, Howard Zinn wrote it, and he said the problem with most of our histories is that they're, one, they're written by the winners. And when we win, we baptize our win as the gospel. We, we just describe it as the righteous ones. And so we can take manifest destiny and we can baptize it into spiritual terms. Now, so I want to talk about this for just a little bit because what, what is interesting about this book isn't merely talks about society in general, but it talks about people of faith. And what people of faith have done that is completely contrary to what we just read in Galatians 3. In fact, there were people of faith that were asking leaders of faith, is this the right thing to do? This is a correspondence that took place between a priest in Rome and an American leader in the United States. In the year 1610, a Catholic priest, and I'm not slamming the Catholics because this is universal. Uh, This is our history, a Catholic priest in the Americas named Father Sandoval wrote back to a church functioner in Europe and asked if the capture, transport, and enslavement of African blacks was legal by church doctrine. A letter dated March 12, 1610 from Brother Luis Brandenson to Father Sandoval gives the answer. Your reverence writes me that you would like to know whether the Negroes who are sent to your parts have been legally captured. To this I reply that I think your reverence should have no scruples on that point because this is a matter which has been questioned by the board of the conscience in Lisbon and all its members are learned and conscientious men. Nor did the bishops who were in uh, Seo uh, Tom, Cape Verde, and here in Leando, all learned virtuous men find fault with it. We have been here ourselves for 40 years, and there have been among us very learned fathers. Never did they consider the trade as illicit. Therefore, we, as the fathers of Brazil, buy these slaves for our service without any scruple. We are all clothed in Christ, and there is no difference between slave or free, Jew or Gentile. And how is it that we could take Christian community and say about what it means to walk with Jesus that there's nothing wrong with that type of commerce? Commerce is called commerce. They are objects, these, these folks were. And we go on, and we can read again about the treatment of women. Just a scathing question that was asked, a scathing response that took place in regards to women. Listen to to this. Uh, By the way, Peter said I had 45 minutes, so just sit back, okay? (laughs) Listen to this. But all women were burdened with the ideas carried over from England with the colonists, influenced by Christian teaching. English law was summarized in a document in 1632 entitled, The Law's Resolution of Women's Rights. And it says this, in this consolidation, which we call wedlock, is a locking together. It is true that man and wife are one person. That's the Bible. 
Go to the book of Genesis. And that's what the Bible says. Listen to what these religious leaders said. But understand in what manner when a small brook or a little river incorporateth with the Rodondas, the Humber, or the Thames, these are massive rivers, little river, massive river, when they join together, the poorest rivulet loseth her name. A woman, as soon as she is married, is called covert, that is, veiled, as it were, clouded and overshadowed. She hath lost her stream. I may more truly far away say to a married woman, her new self is her superior, her companion, her master. Because she's nothing but a small rivulet, an insignificant stream. When we look at the role of women and we realize what a woman's body actually accomplishes, how can you call it anything but massively significant? My donation to the life of my kids was a single gamut cell, period. And then what happened in the body of my wife was that eternity was created. And somehow we call that an insignificant stream. Do you see where this takes us when we forsake the gospel? Where God's word said we are all clothed in Christ. We are all created in the image of God. And if we're going to use rivers and streams as a metaphor, in this case, a raindrop perhaps comes to mind when my significance is described. And then we say we're supposed to be a Christian community. When we embrace distinctions like this, friends, there's something easily broken. There is a disease that can quickly infect us. And some of us still live in the back of our thinking, in the depths of our hearts, with some of these biases and distortions that stand in complete contradiction to the character of community that Paul says must occupy our life together. We all flourish. Those around us flourish. There is no difference between us because every single one of us matters deeply and wholly and love is present. Paul goes back to that in chapter 5, verse 14. The entire law is fulfilled in one statement. And we will get to that in a minute. But just note this. There are many examples of the brokenness of the church. The miracle is the church marches on and people see the glory of God. But that doesn't give us a reason to set aside thought about what it means for the church to better look like what it was meant to be. So how do we build up our immune system and resist the infections that we are so susceptible to in our society and even in our Christian communities? Well, Paul says we must change our focus. We must develop whole and flourishing Christian community. So I want to address three elements of what Paul says here. The first is this. We need to focus less on destructive behaviors and attitudes. Church I grew up in called that sin. We need to focus less on sin. Can you believe that? I was a pastor for 27 years. 
And, and, and you're saying that? I thought pastors preached that all the time. In fact, so surprising and so startling is this that Paul spends chapter one and chapter two and part of chapter three reminding them that he's still on their side. He's speaking to a room full of moralists, people steeped in moralism, people who know how important it is. He's speaking to a whole community of them and before he even gets to this point, he wants them to know that he's part of them. But his message is this, we must focus less on destructive behaviors and attitudes. In chapter five, verse 14, he reduces the entire law to one command. Can we move ahead with this, man? The entire law is fulfilled, it said, in keeping one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Can you imagine a room full of people who see the value of the law and morals and principles, hearing someone say, hey, you're going to reduce all of this really important stuff down to one thing? And Paul says, yes, I am. It's not that he doesn't know about the other stuff. It's not that the other stuff doesn't matter. In fact, he serves, uh, he serves the people well to let them know, I know what that list looks like. And right after what we read earlier, he actually reiterates the list again. There it is. These are the things that are dangerous. They're dangerous in, in general, but they're dangerous to Christian community. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and others like this. In fact, this isn't the whole list. The list is actually even longer than this. So Paul was talking to a list, a congregation of moralists and people that want to pay close attention to this list. It's not that Paul was pro-destructive behavior. Paul wasn't pro-sin. Paul was assuring the audience, some of which doubt his orthodoxy, that he understands the incompatibility of this list with the Christian life. These things matter to Paul, specifically because they destroy community. But he says, would you stop focusing on them? Stop paying attention to them. Let's reduce it to this one piece and let this other stuff flow out of that one piece. Why, do we why, why does he say stop focusing on them? Because they create separation. They create categories, compliance standards, holy days, months, and seasons, which aren't merely rituals, or which aren't merely liturgy. They're demanded, and I will measure you by whether you're in attendance or not. You see, that's what's created in things like this, actually. It creates hierarchy. If we focus on this as the primary thing, we're going to separate into groups. Good, better, and best, and worst. And why are you even here? Do you see how that happens? The second element of it is that it welcomes shame. Did any of you actually reevaluate? Even as I read that list quickly to you, did any of you reevaluate your value and your standing here because you saw yourself up there? Do you see what it does? Well, well, I'm glad Mark or Peter or whoever, the worship team can stand up in front. I can never be there. I'll never be good enough. You see, the very thing that God does, the way that God doesn't want you to live is, is the way we end up living because we think this sticks to us and identifies us. It creates shame. And beyond that, there's another reason for it. It's this stuff slips in anyway. You focus on it, something else turns out. You know, I was just, um, this this week, my daughter... Uh, sent me a, um, 
a podcast from a conservative opinion leader and it's making its way around some of her Christian friends and she sure didn't think much of it and she was concerned and essentially this uh, conservative opinion leader was saying this that the president of the United States needs to be mean he needs to be meaner than all of the other meanies out there he says many of us may not like it but this is what we need really how did that happen I don't care what your politics are you shouldn't care as much what my politics are but how did that happen how did it happen that we actually reached the conclusion that meanness was legitimate do we find any place Jesus saying anything like that? Oh, I know, I know Dr. King spoke of anger, but never cruelty. He, in fact, hoped for a beloved community in the future, and you don't get to a beloved community through meanness, through cruelty. And yet somehow, in some way, you see, we focus as much as we can on what we think we better stay away from and something else emerges and we miss it. It's like whack-a-mole. Do you remember that game? I'm, I'm, I'm older than most of you, but you, you pop one mole that pops out of the game and another one pops up. It's like sticking your finger in the dike. If a pastor is going to preach on this list, he will go through the list and he'll come back to it or she'll come back to it over and over again because we'll never finish getting this stuff right. Not till Jesus comes. We will, we will never get there. Do you see what happens? We each focus on the thing that bothers us, and then this other thing rears its ugly head. Dallas Willard calls it the gospel of sin management. To focus on destructive behaviors is a never-ending endeavor. I want you to believe that. To focus on destructive behaviors is a never-ending endeavor. It's not that we ignore it, but we replace its place as primary and we make it secondary. This is the principle of primary and secondary concerns. Let me illustrate. I eat to live, primary. There's nothing better than a buttery grilled cheese sandwich. I grew up in Wisconsin, secondary. You see, if primary replaces secondary, and you find me with three or four buttery grilled cheese sandwiches in my hand every day, the secondary thing actually destroys the primary thing. Do you see? I have made a covenant relationship with my life, with my wife. We love having fun together. We are primary. I have a covenant relationship with my wife. We love having fun together, secondary. When we love having fun together becomes primary. And we're not having fun together. What happens to this? I love serving other people, primary. I make a living at it, secondary. I make a living. I'm not so concerned about this. 
Do you see how those kinds of things happen? And this is what Paul is doing here. We've taken destructive things matter and we've made it primary. And friends, it's secondary. So what's primary? Well, Paul tells us. Primary is to live by the Spirit. 525, chapter 5, verse 25. We belong to Jesus Christ. We live by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is Christ's gift to us and gift to the church. And in fact, in Ephesians 1, it says that we are sealed by the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit comes in and he lives in us. Jesus provides the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to go but I'm sending my spirit who will live in you. We are not different because our actions are good. We are different because our lives are occupied. That's the core of who we are. And then Paul here adds another list. And the moralists are paying close attention. They actually like this list too. It's called the fruit of the spirit and we see that in front of us. Love, joy, peace, Forbearance or patience is another word. It's a slight modification of that. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And they say, yeah, I like that list. Okay, if you're not going to talk about the bad things, let's talk about the good things. And you may say, wait a minute, Mark. Wait a minute. Wait. Aren't, you just, aren't you just replacing um, what uh, don't, let's not focus on the bad. And you're saying, okay, now we better focus on the good. No, no. The command here isn't to be these things. The command here is to live by the Spirit. And He does those things. You see, we live by the Spirit. In fact, it's more clear than that. In chapter 5, verse 16, it says to walk by the Spirit. 5, verse 18, is to be led by the Spirit. 4, 6, listen to what the Spirit says in our hearts. 5, 25, keep in step with the Spirit. That's our job. That's our primary calling to welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives and then to walk with Him. Not to focus on a new list of things that we're supposed to do that are good, but to focus on life in the Holy Spirit. This is what the Spirit does. I'd like to show you how, just in a little bit. But before we get there, I want us to notice the Bible teaches that the Spirit is the one who corrects. The Spirit is the one who instructs. The Spirit is the one who leads. In fact, if we walked around this place and said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the whole community would change. Because I look at a person who has hurt me and I can say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit is alive and what the Holy Spirit is doing in me is also doing in you and you and all of those other people. Those people that we say, I'm not sure I can get close to that person. Do you know what they're like? I believe in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter where they've been. It matters that they're clothed in Christ. It matters that they're sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's it. We need to walk around with a greater sense of saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit when we look at each other. I have a friend of mine, he was an engineering student at Milwaukee School of Engineering. I had a wonderful job. I was the uh, campus and campus ministry with an organization, University Christian Fellowship. And one of our students said to me, Mark, there's this young man who's really curious about Christianity. And so... I went to the cafeteria and 
shared his life and his struggles and his desire to follow Jesus. It was one of those wonderful occasions when it just happened so easily and so quickly. And they said to Bruce, Bruce, this is about life with the Holy Spirit, life in Christ. So let's get together and let's talk about what that's like. So I went to Bruce's dorm room. And uh, it was a typical guy's dorm room in an engineering school. Anyway, probably. Uh, and, um, and we were going through this little booklet and it was called, uh, I don't remember what it was. It was about different room, your houses, your, your, your life was like a house, what my heart Christ home. Yeah, cool, cool book. And it talks about these different rooms of our house, different categories of our life that would be marked by the influence of God, God's presence there. And one of the rooms in the house was what you, the reading room, what you, what you read and what you saw with your eyes and to assess whether that is actually leading you in the direction that you want to go in your life. I thought this would be particularly relevant for Bruce because when I was in his dorm room, he had his computer and right up above it, he had all sorts of graphic pornography and was scattered throughout the room. And uh, we'd walk into the room and we would have a conversation and I thought, finally we're getting to the topic. And I walked into the room and it, we started talking about, what is this, Bruce, what does this mean? What does this mean? And he gave me some inane response that just really irritated me, really ticked me off. I wanna just grab him by the shirt and say, Bruce, look around the room. Don't you know what this means? But there was a sense in me that said, Mark, if this is real, it will be real. Let it go. Came back the next week, all the pornography was gone. He said to me, guess what happened to me this week? And I just tried to play real dumb. Dumb what? He said, I was sitting at my computer, working on assignment, a bunch of other guys in the room, and I pushed my chair back and I looked up at the wall and I thought to myself, I don't want that in my life anymore. And he said, I ripped it off the wall and I said, does anybody else want a picture? Now, that wouldn't be the way I would go with it. But do you see what God does? I believe in the Holy Spirit. The church is not a correctional institution. Our primary strength is not behavioral modification. Our bread and butter is the Holy Spirit. That's where we stand. Don't bring your kid into this church because you hope we will somehow straighten them up. The only thing we can offer is the Spirit who will seal that man or woman and guide him or her into Christ-likeness. And we know that because he does that in us. We are not a correctional institution. We live and breathe and exist alongside the Holy Spirit. Now, I used to preach stuff like this, and this is right where I would end. But fortunately, Peter gave me 45 minutes. I actually don't know where I am on the clock right now. But you're still out there, and Cece just said it's okay. I'm 10 minutes in? Okay, I'm 10 minutes in. <laughs> That's good. I'm not going to be much longer, but I'm going to be longer. 
uh, this is where I would end my sermons. Live by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. And everybody says, some of you actually did say amen to that. You know, you're kind of with it. Let's say, okay, let's go out there and live by the Spirit. And some of you are scratching your head and you say, and what in the world does that mean? I mean, how do I do that? Actually, the text tells us. It's right there in this text. It actually says, keep walking with the Spirit. Now, this is not the metaphor you may think it is. Here I am, I'm walking with the Spirit, and I'm just trying to do the right thing, and He's helping me, I'm walking with the Spirit. No, actually, when it's talking about walking with the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't walk around this place. The Spirit of the living God walks out of this place. This is what Jesus said. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm sending my Spirit, and He will go with you into the world. This is how that blessing of us blesses others. We actually leave this space. Keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Don't make that a metaphor for having your devotions. Go with the Spirit where Jesus goes. Into the world, into the lives of broken, messy people and situations and social structures and all of that. Walk with the Spirit into those places. Now there's a common sequence in church mission statements. We don't have one that is this sequential, but here's an example. Uh, uh, gather, you know, when well, we're gonna get people to come in, and grow, and we're gonna sit here, and we're gonna learn, and then we go. It's like it's a sequence. First we gather, then we grow. That's gonna take a long time. I mean, before you're getting me out the door, I, I just got some more growing to do. And then, and then we go after that. We can actually even do this with our vision statement if we want to. Christ, well, that's about being holy. Community, that's about belonging and cause, be missional. And some of, some of us might be there, but I'm still working on the holy part. Or I'm still working on the community part of it. You see, there's kind of this sequence in it. What did Jesus do? He called his disciples and it said, follow me. Here's what it says, follow me and I will send you out. Not in a few years. He took them out and he took them into places right away. I will leave my spirit, he said, and send you into the world and you will do what I have been doing. We follow and we, we, or we walk with the spirit in the world into our neighborhoods, into awkward places, into broken places. Now, why should this matter? Mark, I thought you were talking about community. Here's why it matters. Because that walk is the way the spirit not only works in the world, but the way the spirit works in me. I actually become a person who makes me and us better when I'm out there. Because I come into Christian community with a new perspective. And the Holy Spirit builds into me stuff because I'm walking with him out there that wouldn't be true of me anyway, any other way. Oh, I can look like I'm a kind person, gentle, I got that down. But wait till I walk out into the world and I don't feel kind or gentle. And then the spirit of the living God, because I'm walking with him, actually changes me and I become a different person. And places where people do that become different places. I wanna give you three examples that I hope will generate perhaps some clear direction for you. Friday I had a coffee with a friend of mine. I'd never seen him experience more joy in his life. He's early 50s, and uh, he was a business person for years. He would get in a corporate jet out of Kansas City Monday morning, and he would fly to Raleigh. 
His last uh, position as a CEO was of a major food company that all of us would know the name of. And uh, he was pretty successful. And he would do stuff around church because that's what you do. And he was particularly helpful. I mean, he was smart. And he was encouragement. And uh, we became friends. Now he's not working for that food company anymore. Uh, Next week, he's actually traveling to Ukraine to meet with some Christian leaders in Ukraine. They're trying to figure out a way to care for marginalized people in their community. And because he's really good at food, he and a number of others have started one of those hydroponic berry farms. Acres and acres and acres of strawberries. And the leader of this organization is a Ukrainian. And all of the people that benefit from it are Ukrainian. And they actually have raised enough money that this school that they want to provide for people is a third of its funding, $250,000, comes through these hydroponic fruit farms. And he says, in year two, it'll be 500000 if all goes well. In year three, it'll be 750000 And we'll have the whole thing completely covered. He says, Mark, I'm having the time of my life. After that, he's going to Uganda. And he's meeting with some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in that place. And he's using his skill set to be able to help Ugandan people care for marginalized people. And they're about to transport that to Zambia. And I'm telling you, I have never seen him so happy. This is what he said. You know, there are these things that we're told to do. You know, there's a school nearby, and I'm, I'm guilty. Let's just go tutor those kids. And he said, I'm okay with that. He says, I'm not any good at that. I mean, a fifth grader, we don't have much in common. But I can do that because that's what churches do. But you know what I discovered, Mark? I discovered God could use my A game. Walk with the Spirit into the world with your A game. And watch the joy that bubbles up inside of you that far surpasses a trip to Disney World. Do you see what the Holy Spirit does? Do you see what that does to the community in Uganda, the community in Ukraine, the community in Zambia, and the community in Kansas City that he's a part of? Because this man is enjoying life in a way he never experienced it before. Not because he tried to be a person of joy, but because he kept in step with the Holy Spirit. Another story, my wife and I took university students over to Europe and uh, did missions stuff there, just basically mostly learned from what people were doing in those places. But one of the things that struck us was the resources we had in Milwaukee, we were there at the time, and the resources had by the people we were working with. They had very little. I mean, they would wear the same clothes two, three, four days in a row. I know it's part of the culture, but it was also because that was just pragmatically the only way to be able to handle all of the financial issues they struggled with. We came back, and we had just purchased our first home, brand new. Not brand new home, but that was the beauty of it. It actually required a hardware, uh, a hardware um, store. And my, my favorite time of the day was to be able to pull out the magazine, the, the, the stuff that would come in the mail, with all of the stuff I needed to fix the house. I mean, I needed a fence, I needed a saw, I needed a drill. Beth, we, we need more stuff. 
And I realized that uh, I was consumed by consumption again. And then I remembered our trip, walking with the Spirit to Ireland. And the Holy Spirit prodded me and says, Mark, is this the way you want to live? Nobody shamed me. Nobody preached on self-control. I just went someplace where self-control then became a value. You see, we walk into these places and we're changed by it. One more. Disciples, I don't know what was happening that particular day. Jesus must have overheard them. I mean, they did crazy things. They're just like all of us. You know, we say stuff that we regret afterwards. And I'm sure that these disciples had said something that particular day because Jesus said to them, this is recorded in Matthew 15, Jesus says, I want you to get on your sandals and we're gonna take a trip. We're gonna take a trip to Syria. Now, from Jerusalem, that's about 124 miles. I don't know exactly where they were in Galilee, but I know that it was a good, long trip. They finally get to the Syrophoenician area, and there are four red-letter sentences in this story, period. Jesus uttered four sentences, and they get in their sandals, and they go back home. What were the sentences were? First of all, Jesus didn't say anything. There was a Syrian woman who was so, such a nag that the disciples got so frustrated with her. Her daughter was ill and, and near death, and, and, and it was just kind of blah, blah, blah. Would you just please shut up? I mean, they say to Jesus, would you please just take care of this woman here? Because Jesus seemed to be ignoring them. First sentence, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't ever preach that because Jesus is just messing with the disciples there. I mean, you know John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes should not perish. So what's this thing you're telling? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the host of Israel. Jesus is just messing with them right now and they should have caught on right then. Second sentence, he essentially calls her a dog. Now, some people say about that, well, see, that's why nobody should pay attention to Jesus. The whole category of people of faith that would say, well, if you look in the original language, it actually means puppy. <laughs> that is crap. <laughs> Jesus calls her the most offensive thing that they could ever imagine. Why did he do that? I am convinced that it's because Jesus knew what was exactly in the heart of his disciples. They lived with racism. They embraced racism. They had incorporated it into their faith. And you don't go to Sunday school class to knock that kind of stuff out of you. You take a trip 40 miles to a place where there is a woman, vulnerable woman in the most needy place in her life, and the notion of categorizing her as a dog is the last thing anybody could possibly think of. And so Jesus says out loud what was in the hearts of the disciples. I mean, can you just picture it there? there poking each other. Can you believe he said it out loud? 
Can you believe he said it out loud? And you know, you just, I just imagine Jesus is, calls their dog and then he looks over at them and say, how did that feel? Can you even imagine believing that? But that's in your heart right now. The next thing he does is he admires her faith and he heals her daughter and they get in their sandals and they go home. Those lessons don't happen in Sunday school class. These things happen when we go in the world with the Holy Spirit and we discover what happens in us is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. Not because we're paying attention to the bad stuff we should avoid, but because we're on mission with Jesus. Now here's what I'd like you to do as we wrap this up. Apologize to the people taking care of your kids downstairs because it's been so long. But the second thing is, I'd like you to look at this list again of the fruit of the Spirit. And I'd like you to ask yourself, which one do I most want? What do I most long for to be true in my life? And then ask the Lord to show you the place you can go walking with the Spirit where that can be built into your life. When a church is on mission, guided by the Holy Spirit, it becomes the beloved community. People will marvel at that and then we will direct them to Jesus, the one who is still changing us by the power of the Holy Spirit and our willingness to keep in step with the Spirit. May God be gentle and clear and firm with us. Amen.